This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by The Strenuous Life. The Strenuous Life is an online platform that we created to help you put into action all the things we've been talking about on the AOM podcast and writing about on artofmanliness.com for the past 10 years. We've done that by creating a series of 50 badges based around 50 different skills, things like self-defense, wilderness survival, general outdoor skills. There's also things like personal finance, entrepreneurship, how to be a better family man. Besides the badges, we have tools that'll hold you accountable for your fitness and also your character development. We're gonna have you do a good deed every day so you think outside of yourself and also the platform allows you to coordinate meetups with other TSL members in your area because we're big proponents of face-to-face meetups here at Art of Manliness. If you'd like to learn more about Strenuous Life, head over to strenuouslife.co. Again, it's strenuouslife.co. Learn more about it. There's a lot of details there. While you're there, make sure to get on our email waiting list. Our next enrollment will be in March. So if you'd like to know when that opens up, enter your email. Again, strenuouslife.co. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. According to the popular evolutionary theory of human attraction, people select romantic partners based on objective assessments of what's called their mate value, the extent to which an individual possesses traits like good looks and status. But is that really all that's behind the way people pair up? Well, my guest today has done a series of studies which add greater nuance to the mysteries of romantic attraction. His name is Paul Eastwick. He's a professor of psychology at UC Davis. We begin our conversation unpacking the fact that there's sometimes a gap between the sexual romantic partners people say they prefer in the abstract and the partners they actually choose in real life. We then turn to whether or not the popular idea that men value physical attractiveness more than women and that women value status and resources more than men is really true. We also talk about how people's consensus over who is and isn't attractive changes over time and whether it's true that people of equal attractiveness generally end up together. We end our conversation discussing how these research-based insights can be applied to the real world of dating and why if you're not Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise, Cary Grant, 1980s Tom Selleck, and whatever famous handsome man you want. If you're not any of those guys, you may have better luck meeting people offline than online in an app. Some interesting insights in the show that lend credence to the old adage that there's someone for everyone. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash Eastwick. Paul joins me now via clearcast.io. Paul Eastwick, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So you are a professor of psychology and you've spent your career researching human attraction. And what I think is interesting about your research is that it it goes a different direction from what the sort of the popular and accepted ideas that are out there about what makes humans attracted to one another. So before we get to your research and how it adds to that theory, what is, can you walk us through like what the popular and accepted theory of what make men and women attractive to each other is, but it's, I guess it's based in evolutionary theory. Yeah. So there's um, a lot of work out there that takes what I would call a trait-based approach to understanding what makes men and women attractive. And this is a very simple idea. It's that we possess particular desirable qualities, or we don't. And the extent to which you have those desirable qualities is what makes you appealing in a mate. And we can talk about things that you can see on the surface, like physical attractiveness. We can talk about status and resources. We can also talk about traits like intelligence. But the presumption here is that there is some sort of objective reality about a person and the extent to which they have those desirable traits 
and that a person's desirability as a mate or their mate value, that's sort of often the term that's used, can be sort of calculated based on the extent to which they possess those sorts of traits. And, and also the research has shown there's differences between the sexes on what's attractive and not attractive. Like men find certain things attractive in women, but women find other traits attractive in men. That's right. So the, the, the calculus for mate value classically differs between men and women. You know, intelligence is very appealing to both men and women and a partner. But when you ask men and women, how much do you care about traits like attractiveness? Men will tend to rate it higher than women, although women like it too. You see the reverse for traits like resources, right? With women rating it higher than men. But in general, these findings sort of fit into this, what I would call this trait-based mate value sort of approach, where the idea is that there's some sort of reality about the traits that you possess And your job, if you're looking for a mate from this perspective, is to size up whether or not somebody has these qualities and then make your choice accordingly. And it's also a very like market-driven, right, approach to relationships, right? You have certain values and you kind of have to make trade-offs on what you have and what what the other person has. Exactly, exactly. It is, and and that's why it's, you know, evolutionary theory uh, touches on these ideas, but yeah, it's based on these very classic market-based ideas about marriage. This pervades sociology going, you know, back 70 years or more. These, these are very influential, important ideas that have long pervaded how people think about the way relationships form and are maintained. And how have evolutionary psychologists come to this conclusion that, you know, men find, you know, tr- physical attractiveness more important than women find, you know, physical attractiveness in men. Like, what are the what do the studies look like where they've come to this conclusion? Well, it's interesting because humans can do this really funny thing, which is you can put rating scales in front of us, and we can fill them out with a pen or a pencil. And what that means is that instead of uh, you know, if you were studying animals in the wild, you'd have to set up these really complex designs and sort of oh, see which of the mates you know the the females would pursue, or you know see which mates the males would pursue. But in humans, you can sort of throw a scale in front of them and, and be done in 30 seconds. And so much of the research supporting these sex differences tends to use that latter approach. That is, you ask men and women to rate physical attractiveness on a rating scale from you know 1 to 10. How much do you like this trait? And that's where you see men say they care about it more than women. You see the reverse with things like status and resources. So uh, a lot of the research is pretty straightforward and and questionnaire based uh, along those lines. It's sort of this, you know, neat thing you can get humans to do that you can't get other non-human animals to do. So basically what these surveys ask is like what you would want in a like hypothetical potential mate, not an actual mate, correct? Right. I mean, you know, they're asking people to think about what would you want an ideal mate to have? And, And people, people can do this. People, you know, when you give people questionnaires like that, they're like, They're not thinking, I have never pondered such a thing before. Like people are definitely, uh, you know, they can call to mind what their ideal partner looks like. But I'd also argue that that requires a level of self-insight that is underappreciated. That is, we we can ask whether or not people really know the extent to which attractiveness appeals to them. And is that captured by a rating on a rating scale? It's one of the questions that we've tried to pursue in our research. 
So in, in addition to what this idea of, you know, trait-based attraction, there's this idea of a sort of mating that comes up that, you know, attractive people end up with other attractive people, stat, high status people end up with other high status people. So there's that aspect to this trait-based theory as well. Yes, that's right. And it is certainly true that you see a sort of mating on many qualities, qualities like attractiveness, you know, traits that people generally say they really like in a partner, both men and women, you know, rate attractiveness quite highly. And indeed, the attractive men and the attractive women tend to pair up. Now, that that association is far from perfect, right? So there are plenty of matched couples and plenty of mismatched couples out there too. And so it's, you know, we need our explanations to to be able to account for the existence of both the matches and the mismatches, uh, if you will. So there's been mountains of research for the past 20, 30 years that reinforce this idea that, you know, they've done this across cultures too. It doesn't matter whether you're in Japan or America or England, men tend to rate physical attractive attractiveness more important on the on their like list of wanted traits in women than women do and women put an emphasis on resources and status right right so, so despite this this mountains of research that have have shown this over and over again what led you to think that there was you know something else going on and how people decide who they pair up with so the you know, we noticed that much of this research had sort of used these questionnaire type approaches where you're asking people what they're looking for. The better studies would do something a little bit more clever. They would say, introduce you, usually in the form of an online dating profile or something like that, to a series of people who vary in attractiveness. And then you could ask the question, well, does the attractiveness of, you know, these various people that you're looking at predict who you like, who you choose? And there were a few studies that that had conceptualized the appeal of attractiveness that way. Not my theory about how much attractiveness appeals to me, but sort of this enacted preference, something we actually call a functional preference, right? If you present me with a series of mates that vary in attractiveness, to what extent am I likely to take the attractive ones relative to the unattractive ones? That's like a more like live in the moment way of capturing the extent to which attractiveness appeals to me. So there'd been a few studies out there that had used that sort of approach, but almost none that had used that kind of approach with people actually meeting face-to-face. And we thought, well, gee, ancestrally, certainly, and even in the modern day for the large, you know, for the most part, people meet face-to-face before they start seeing, you know, where this thing is going. And so we wanted to see what did people's functional preferences look like once these face-to-face meetings had taken place. So tell me about a study that you did to uh, look into that idea a bit more. So one of the first studies that we conducted along these lines was a study with speed daters. So we brought a number of men and women together who were single and looking to potentially date new people, but these folks hadn't met each other before. And these were heterosexual speed dating events, so all of the men have a chance to meet all of the women. And so you're meeting this array of people who are varying in attractiveness. And then we look to see how much does attractiveness appeal to me as I go about selecting these people saying, oh, I'd like to meet you again and not you, you know, when rating how much I like these various people. 
And sure enough, physical attractiveness was a very strong predictor of the extent to which people liked their speed dating partners. But that association, the power of attractiveness, was identical for men and women. Physical attractiveness, as instantiated in these real people, was just as powerful a predictor of initial attraction for men as it was for women. There was no sex difference there whatsoever. Interesting. So what do you think that says about the, the theory that's out there that women prefer you know, status and resources more, you know, that they rate that higher than men do. Right. What is that, what, what's going on there then? So it's interesting. I mean, you know, one thing we've been trying to figure out is that it looks like there is some sort of self-insight gap that is plaguing people, right? People aren't totally off when you ask them sort of the kinds of qualities and attributes they like in general. There's there's often a little bit of, of an association there, especially when people are in very simple environments, right? So if I ask you, how much do you like sweetness when it comes to your breakfast cereals, you will actually give me an answer that reflects pretty good self-insight. But as the domain gets more and more complicated, and we when we get into the really complicated domain of romantic attraction, people's insight just seems to fade. And the kinds of qualities they think are really appealing to them when you ask them in the abstract end up having very little relation to what actually appeals to them in the moment. So we, we do think there is this self-insight gap there that... And what that means is that when you ask people about the kinds of qualities that they care about in a partner, you're getting a lot of other stuff in those reports that don't necessarily reflect strong self-insight, right? People might be reporting their sense of what desirable members of the opposite sex generally are like, right? As opposed to, you know, what are the traits that are really going to appeal to me specifically? Well, another interesting thing about speed dating is that it's very, like, it's all about initial attraction. Because, like, the idea in evolutionary theory is that women put an emphasis on resources more than men because they're looking for a long-term companion. Is, like, does the the short duration of speed dating, does that change things, like, how, how women evaluate? Or do you think just, like, no, women actually put an emphasis on, on attraction more than they think they do? That's a, that's a great question. I think that, you know, and, and when we ran those first studies, that was sort of the next question for us was, well, okay, is this limited to initial attraction? Maybe some of these sex differences start to emerge later. And we actually conducted a very large scale study a few years later. It's called a meta-analysis. And then a meta-analysis, you just bring many different data sets together that can all address a similar question. And so we had data from tens of thousands of participants that look across the full span of people's relationships. So not just initial attraction, but also what happens in dating relationships, what happens in, you know, uh, in, in married relationships. Do you see these sex differences playing out? Now, we can look at these same kinds of associations in these data sets. So generally, when women are married to men who have more versus fewer resources, do they tend to be happier in those relationships? And importantly, if we ask the same question of men, are men happier when they're in relationships with women who have status and resources? Are they happier? So when we look at all of those effects and all of those associations across all of these data sets, 
we end up seeing, again, no evidence for these sex differences. So to go back to the status and resources example, there's a small effect that people tend to be happier in their relationships when their partner has, you know, more status and more, more resources. It's not nearly as large as physical attractiveness and initial attraction. But that effect is just as strong for men as it is for women, which frankly, we found a little mind blowing, right? The idea that, that men are a little bit happier in their relationships when their women have status and resources. That was not intuitive to us going into this study, but this was a pretty large swath of evidence that seemed to suggest that, you know what, they're, you know, the, the, the status resources effect when you look at at uh, across data sets in this aggregated way, you don't see much of a sex difference there. Okay, so meta-analysis shows that you know, men and women are actually, there's not that much of a difference when you look at things at a, a broad broad view. You also done some interesting research too that show that whether we find someone attractive or not depends on a lot on how long we've known them. Can you talk about that, re- walk us through that research? Yes, definitely. So, This goes back to this sort of classic trait-based approach, right? I mean, the reason we're asking questions about why we think physical attractiveness is more appealing to men or women, same thing with status and resources, is because classically the field has treated mating and mate selection in this trait-based way, right? There's a reality that you possess that's determined by your traits and Again, my job as a mate selector is to assess those traits and then make my selections accordingly. I think what that perspective misses, at least with respect to humans, is that part of the mate selection process in humans ancestrally wouldn't have been about finding the objectively best mate or even the objectively best mate that you could get given your own mate value. It would be about this ephemeral thing called compatibility. And that's because a lot of what mate selection was about in our ancestral past was about uh, coordination and interdependence, right? So in order to raise these very costly offspring, I have to essentially set up um, an effective coordinated system with you and not just you, but also your family members and my family members, right? But the the pair bonding process and then what it takes to raise these costly offspring is not something that's just about your traits and my traits. It's all. Ab- it's also about how well we fit together and how well we work together. And so another of the main mate selection tasks that people have to solve is this assessment of compatibility. And that's a lot trickier than assessing whether or not somebody has desirable traits. Gotcha. So this is, you'd call it, I guess you'd call it relational attributes. Yes, right. It's it's a way of thinking about the concept of mate value, but in a relational way, right? The idea is simply that, you know, somebody might not have the most desirable traits in the world, but because of the way we fit together, this person has tremendous mate value for me specifically. And I think that's a useful way of thinking about the compatibility concept. Now, what it suggests is that you know, when we all get together and rate each other's traits, sure, there's bound to be some agreement. We're going to agree on who is attractive and who isn't. 
But what's going on with the disagreements that we have? Is it just random error? Are we guessing? Or is there something systematic and important about those disagreements that also tell us something about the way mate selection works? Well, walk us through the study you did with uh, college students where they had, you, know, you had them uh, rate each other's attractiveness when they f- the first day of class and then done the same thing three months later. Right. So that's exactly what we did. So we had these students in a, in a class. They had just met each other and all of the opposite sex pairs in the class are rating each other in terms of their attractiveness, but other, you know, traits classically related to mate selection, things like intelligence, things like status. And what you see at the beginning of the academic semester is that there's pretty strong agreement there about who is attractive and who isn't. Now, there's also a lot of idiosyncratic variance as well. And in fact, you can compare these things to each other mathematically, and you see about as much consensus as you do idiosyncratic variability. So there's a healthy amount of agreement about who's attractive and who isn't, but also important real disagreement, right? I think this person's more attractive than you do, right? That doesn't mean that I'm right and you're wrong, or vice versa. That's legitimate disagreement there on top of the existing consensus. But then we followed them up at the end of the semester. And what we found at that point was that things had started to shift, but it shifted in in a way that's a little bit counterintuitive. People's consensus about who was attractive in the class actually went down relative to the beginning of the semester. And that idiosyncratic variability, the disagreements, you know, sort of in in parallel increased. So in other words, as I get to know you better, we start agreeing less about whether or not you're attractive, right? The people who you know especially well start to agree less and less about how desirable you are. And we think this is reflective of this idiosyncratic nature of the way mate value works. As I get to know you better and better, you make a joke that I think is particularly unfunny, but somebody else thinks is quite funny. That feeds into your attractiveness judgments of the person. You know, you, you know, make other remarks in class. I, I witness you doing something really nice for somebody, but somebody else doesn't witness that. That feeds into your attractiveness judgment. So because when we form impressions of each other over time, the meaning of those different behavioral nuggets can be interpreted so differently by the people who are observing you and sort of judging you and considering you as a potential mate. That's what causes that consensus to decline and what causes this increase in idiosyncratic judgments of who's desirable and who's not. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Turn your dream into reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project. Whether you're looking to start a new business, showcase your work, publish content, sell products, and more, Squarespace is the tool for you. With beautiful templates created by world-class designers and the ability to customize just about anything with a few clicks, you can easily make a beautiful website yourself. Squarespace's powerful e-commerce functionality also lets you sell anything online and analytics help you grow your site in real time. Everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box and there's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. 
And buying domain names is simple with Squarespace. And you'll be able to get the help you need with Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support in case something doesn't work or breaks. You can connect them and get help right away. Squarespace empowers millions of people from designers to lawyers, artists to gamers, even restaurants and gyms to turn their great ideas into something real. If you'd like to try this out, go to squarespace.com slash manliness for your free trial. When you're ready to launch, use offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, squarespace.com slash manliness for your free trial. Offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Also by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is an online streaming service that gives in-depth information on a huge variety of different topics. Learn about virtually anything you're interested in with thousands of lectures to explore across history, human behavior, science, business, travel, philosophy, cooking, and more. All the information is reliable, fact-based, and presented in a truly engaging way. And not only are the experts knowledgeable, but they deliver and present this information in a way that's passionate and brings the stuff alive. And one course I recommend checking out that does just that, it's a course called Famous Greeks, taught by Professor J. Rufus Fears. I had Professor Fears as a teacher in college. I taught a class called Freedom in Greece. Famous Greeks kind of pretty much follows that course. It is amazing. You're going to learn everything about ancient Greece, starting with the Iliad and the Odyssey, how that influenced the Greek conception of freedom. Talk about the Peloponnesian War, the Persian War. It is amazing. So check it out, Famous Greeks by J. Rufus Fears. You can watch or listen to the Great Courses Plus all on your own schedule. You can binge an entire course or skip around to check out different portions of the topic and you can access them easily at any time from anywhere, mobile phone, laptop, smart TV. The Great Courses Plus will change your life and enrich it. And as one of my listeners, you can sample it for free with unlimited access to learn about anything. Start your free trial now by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash manliness. Again, a free trial by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash manliness. And now back to the show. That's really interesting. So let's, let's, uh, unpack some things here. So when you, when you did the initial evaluation, there was, there was a consensus, not only on physical attractiveness, but also things like, you know, character, you know, yeah. humor, there, there was a consensus there as well. Right. So we also asked people questions like if you were in a relationship with this person, how good would the relationship be? Right. And again, these people have not met for all that long. And yet they're still reaching some consensus about judgments like that too. It's not nearly as high as the consensus they reach when it comes to judgments of physical attractiveness. But, you know, they are sort of looking at these folks around them saying like, oh, maybe being in a relationship with this person would be good. Uh, you know, this person, uh, they seem to have good character. But, you know, people at the beginning, they're drawing from stereotypes. They're drawing from snap judgments as they sort of make these determinations. Yeah, I imagine like the halo effect is also going on. Like, you know, typically yes. attractive if people are seen as, you know, more honest, trustworthy, high status, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it's just, you know, some people at the beginning of the semester, they've got this glow about them. And that's what's sort of yeah, producing the consensus on all of these sorts of judgments, certainly. Okay. And then as you went on, you get to know people more and more. That's when things started. The consensus just basically went away completely. Yeah, I mean, for judgments of things like this person is going to be a good relationship partner, I'd like to be in a relationship with this person. The consensus went down on those measures substantially. There's still a little bit there, but it, it definitely goes down over time. We also ran a similar study among people who had known each other for a few years on average, right? So this is as if we're tapping into your network, right? If you're a, a heterosexual man, we're tapping into your network of female friends and acquaintances, right? So if you think about those women in your life that your friends, your acquaintances, you know, maybe there's an ex in there, 
what do these women think of you? Do they agree about how desirable you are as a partner, about how attractive you are? And those folks exhibited the least consensus out of anybody. So the people who know you the best are the people who agree the least on what you are like when it comes to these romantic sorts of judgments. And and that's another important caveat too, because usually we think like, well, the longer, the more somebody gets to know me, the right people should agree on what I am really like. There's a reality to who I am as a person. And, you know, that's true for things like, you know, what your personality is like. But when it comes to these romantic judgments, the fact that we see this increasing disagreement as people get to know each other suggests to us that, you know, whatever the mate value truth is about a person seems to be quite ephemeral. It seems to disappear the better you get to know somebody and you're left with these very idiosyncratic impressions that some person is really great for me and this person is really not so great for me. So this can go back to what we were talking about a sort of mating, right? So there's this idea that attractive people end up with attractive people. But what this research suggests that the longer someone knows you, you know, they might initially not have found you physically attractive or attractive, but they got to know you and you end up in a relationship with them, right? And so like, you know, you're less attractive than she is. Right. So I guess that can sort of put a, I don't know, uh, a wrench in this idea that, you know, equally attractive people always end up with each other. Right, exactly. And so that was, you know, as we conducted this research, the assortative mating question loomed large because it suggested, well, okay, if we all disagree about who's attractive and who's not, then why is it that you see a sort of mating out there in the world? And so the way we resolve this is by thinking, well, okay, when some relationships form, they form relatively quickly after two people initially meet each other. But other relationships, people know each other for months or even years before they ultimately get together. And what if that distinction, that dimension, explains where some of the variability on assortative mating comes from. That is, what if the people who get together quickly, that's where you see the matches, right? Because these people are largely operating based on consensus. But the mismatches come as people get to know each other better over time. That opens up the opportunity for, you know, Maybe he or she is not the most attractive person on the planet, but as you get to know him or her, you start to see this person as being quite attractive. That can then start to create some of those mismatches. So does the stereotype of like the more attractive women, you know, ending up with the less attractive guy, like the guy, you know, dates up, whatever they, they talk about, does it also work the other way around too? Like sometimes really attractive guys end up with women who would be objectively rated not as attractive. Yes. So the, 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 the flip side of that definitely does happen. But the, the caveat, I th- what, what my guess is that if most of your listeners try to call to mind one example or the other, it is going to be easier for them to call to mind the schlubby guy with the attractive woman. But part of that is caused by the fact that on average, women are more attractive than men. So 
that's that's a, that's that's a little wrinkle in there that that produces this. And usually, when we talk about assortative mating, what we miss is that well, actually, in all of these relationships, on average, the woman is more attractive than the guy by about uh, you know a half of a standard deviation. That's a pretty reasonably sized effect. And so that's an important component uh, of this as well, that women generally tend to be rated as more attractive than men on average when you look at, you know, a reasonably sized swaths of, of real life men and women. Well, how do you think your research complements or doesn't complement, you know, this evolutionary approach of human mating? Because like, I mean, a lot of people have, there's, you know, whole industries, you know, the pickup artist stuff that are based around this evolutionary approach to human mating where you have to like, you, you know, they tell guys how to increase their mate value on these specific traits. What do you think your research does to that idea out that, that's out there? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, I only know a little bit about sort of the, the the pickup artist techniques and the pickup artist scene. And certainly a lot of those techniques and tactics are designed to be effective in initial attraction settings, right, where you're meeting people for the first time. And those are certainly settings where, you know, you're going to cue into these traits that are very easy to pick up very quickly. It takes some time to really get a sense of whether or not, you know, there's something about like unique fit between us. And often that's sort of not exactly what the pickup artists are going for necessarily. So sort of looking for the idiosync, what makes you idiosyncratically desirable to somebody else is, you know, probably some, a technique that's going to be more useful to people who are, you know, cultivating the possibility of forming relationships over a longer period of time. That being said, I think it would be really interesting to sort of clearly hone and define what these effective pickup tactics are, and then train both male and female confederates to use these tactics in initial attraction settings and see how effective they are. Now, maybe they'll only be effective for the men using these tactics and women who, you know, sort of, you know, dress with the fancy hats and sort of use these clever lines. Maybe they won't be appealing, but I don't know. I'd like to see the data. I wonder if those sorts of tactics, if women use them, would also be pretty appealing. And how do you think your research complements the you know the more classic evolutionary approach to human mating? Um, you know, I think in some ways it's very complementary, right? We aren't saying that people don't care about traits like physical attractiveness. Of course they do. But we're saying that the relative amount of sort of consensus going for the popular person, that there's a truth to how desirable you are, that that's true in some settings, but not all settings relative to mate selection, right? In settings where people get to know each other better, you know, people start, whether they know it or not, making judgments that have this more idiosyncratic compatibility element to it. I, I think with respect to some of the sex differences in the appeal of attractiveness or the appeal of status resources, you know, I do think our perspective is harder to reconcile with the evolutionary perspective on that front in the sense that, you know, I, I think when we look at people's impressions of real people, when we look at how people are actually acting in their relationships, I think those sorts of studies get closer to tapping 
the kinds of judgments that really would have mattered in a functional way when people were evolving, as opposed to what people circle on rating scales. So, you know, I think some elements are, are that we that we present are very complementary. Some are are more challenging. And what do you think are some like practical takeaways from this research from people who are in the dating game? That's a good question. So I do think that there is a tendency to think about the, the, the mating and dating as being about a game of first impressions, a game of you know, how does it go when you meet somebody else? Do you sufficiently impress them that they want to hook up with you or they want to give you their number, et cetera? And another really important thing that we find in some of our research is that the vast majority of relationships, whether short-term or long-term, do not form this way. People's hookups and long-term relationships are usually come out of their networks of friends and acquaintances that these, you know, as I talked about before, right? People have networks of their heterosexual opposite sex individuals that sort of float in and out of their lives. And that's where most of these romantic experiences come from. So I think, you know, What's often hard for people is let's say they move to a new city and their social network is pretty thin. It can get very frustrating to be out there dating and trying to meet new people and not having a lot of success. But in some ways, the problem is that getting out there and meeting people on, you know, with initial impressions is always a very tough way to go, regardless of what kind of relationship you're looking for. It's the thinness of your social network that is often the real problem. So if I were to give anybody advice who's struggling with dating, it's the, the more efforts you can put into just sort of building your network gradually, building the people that you know and spend time with, getting to meet new people without immediate expectations of something becoming romantic or sexual right away, that's ultimately going to be a more fulfilling process, right? It's like diversify your portfolio and give it time to grow and expand rather than, you know, like keep hitting the same bars over and over again. I, th I think it's m likely to be a much more fulfilling experience to do the former rather than the latter. And what do you think your research says about dating apps? Because these things like Tinder, they're all based on initial physical attraction, right? You swipe right because you just see a picture of someone who's attractive or not. Right, exactly. And it, and it, it is interesting how online dating has, in some ways, uh, upended this sort of traditional way of forming relationships where, th where relationships, again, sexual hookups or long term grow out of the networks that people have. And with online dating sites and with apps, give certainly the sense that there are all these options out there, right? As you're sort of looking at all the various possibilities in front of you and you're swiping right and swiping left, you get the sense that there are many possibilities out there. And people are often effective at leveraging these sorts of encounters into immediate sexual hookups and things like that. So there's nothing wrong with that. And that's often a very good way to go for people. I think for people who get who are starting to get a little burned out on the apps or feeling like, oh my God, I'm spending a lot of time in these. Again, thinking about these apps as ways of expanding your social network, not you know, solely a means of immediate sexual gratification could also be very, very useful. That, you know, that is, 
you might go on a Tinder date with somebody and it might just be okay, but you did have this one interest in common and you start spending time with the person and get to know some of their friends and your friends meet their friends. And that starts to snowball and expand that way. So I think if, if we, if we don't, you know, dichotomize our relationships so much into, you know, the, these are, these are the people I've sex with. And these are my friends, but we sort of, again, think about a network of people that we know and we allow that network to grow and change over time. I think that ends up sort of giving people the the best possible options. So yeah, you use the apps as a tool to increase your network, not necessarily to get a romantic relationship. Right. I mean, you can use it for that too. But but again, my sense from people that use these apps and and I confess I have not done online dating in a very long time to well before there were the apps. But you know, my sense is that people start to burn out, right? Because they go on a lot of coffee dates before they find somebody that they even remotely like. And sometimes it's useful to find ways of even turning those meh coffee dates into a win. And again, if we don't think about Tinder and other apps as a, an immediate road to, to, to a hookup, that it's really more about expanding your social network that uh, I think tends to go better for people. Yeah, we had uh, Kate Julian, the Atlantic writer. She wrote that article about yeah, the sex yeah, recession yeah. on the, and she, yeah, she talked about, yeah, people getting burnt out. And then also people just um, not having any luck with the apps. So you say you're a guy, you're not, you know, a, you know, a super physically attractive. So they never, they never get a match because, you know, women just like swipe left on them. And they found that, okay, if I just start dating in person, I actually have better luck there because I can, people get to know that I'm funny and I'm charming and I'm kind, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right, exactly. I mean, the, the, the apps do put many people at a, as a, at a substantial disadvantage. All right, so I mean, so I think it sounds like the big takeaway here is, you know, physical attractiveness, those, those play a role, but there's much more nuance to human relationships than what we think there is. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. And that the, you know, humans evolved in relatively small groups where we got to know each other over long stretches of time. And the possible mates that you were going to have over the course of your life, it was a pretty small group. And it was probably a group of people that you tended to know pretty well. And that's, that is an evolved reality that's tough to reconcile with, you know, the fact that many young people today are very mobile, they move from place to place. And they also, uh, you know, often live in large cities where there's vast swaths of people out there. So I think to, to create a community of people is often the thing that, that helps people as they negotiate the romantic landscape. Well, Paul, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your work? They can go to my, my website. It's pauleastwick.com. Very straightforward. And there we have, uh, you know, our publications and, and links to videos and things that explain the kind of work that we do. Yeah, I love it. You have all of your like PDFs, re- your research and PDFs there, which I really appreciate. Yeah, you bet. Uh, so, so thanks for making that available. Well, Paul Eastwick, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Yes, thank you. I've really enjoyed this. My guest today was Paul Eastwick. He's a professor of psychology at UC Davis. You can find out all the research he's done. He's got them all in PDFs for free at his website, paueastwick.com. Go check that out. And also check out our show notes at aom.is slash Eastwick, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. (music) 
Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM podcast. Check out our website, artofmanliness.com, where you can find thousands of well-researched, thorough articles on just about anything, relationships, personal finances, health and fitness, you name it, we've got it. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member. You think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay encouraging you to not only listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've learned into action. Thank you.